0: You are about to hear a debate between Governor Thomas E. Dewey and Harold E. Stassen, candidates for the Republican nomination to the
1: presidency of the United States.
2: It was May 1948 in Portland, Oregon.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. For the past few weeks, Oregonians have been participating in a red-hot political campaign. between Governor An
2: estimated 40 million Americans listened to the debate on their radios. It was the first time a primary debate had been broadcast, and there was only one question.
3: As the campaign has progressed, it appears that the primary issue on which these candidates are diametrically opposed is
1: should the Communist Party in the United States be outlawed?
2: Both men were anti-communist, but had different approaches. Harold Statson thought the Communist Party should be banned. Thomas Dewey thought it was better to challenge its ideas out in the open.
3: My interest is in preserving this country from being destroyed by the development of an underground organization which would grow so colossally in strength, were it outlawed, that it might easily destroy
0: our country.
2: Dewey had the better showing and went on to win the Oregon primary on his way to clinching the nomination. His participation in the debate was a crucial step towards that. At the Republican primary debate this week, the candidate who's almost certain to be the nominee, Donald Trump, didn't feel the need to be there. I'm John Prado and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, where is Donald Trump taking the Republican Party next? While his competitors traded barbs on the debate stage in California earlier this week, Donald Trump claimed the spotlight. In Detroit, he held a rally with auto workers. In New York, a judge ruled that he had committed fraud, something he denies. Over in Washington, the government is headed towards a shutdown as MAGA Republicans in the House hold the nation's finances hostage. The GOP is a mess, thrown into chaos by the malign influence of Donald Trump and his acolytes. How does he manage to dominate the party even when he's absent. With me this week to talk about Donald Trump and where he's taking the Republican Party in 2023 and into 2024 are Charlotte Howard in New York and James Bennett, our Lexington columnist, also in New York. James, how are you doing?
0: I'm fine, John. Thank you for asking. I'm a little bit tired because I was up quite late. I had the privilege of watching the Republican debate last night and then, by the miracle of C-SPAN, watching President Trump's speech in Michigan so that I could write about it for this week's issue.
2: Yes, I should mention we're recording this conversation on Thursday, so after the second GOP debate. But before we know whether there's definitely going to be a government shutdown, By the end of the week. That seems very likely, though, and that's something we'll be talking about later in this episode, as it's not unrelated to the current state of the GOP. Charlotte, how are you doing?
1: I am doing fine. We are going to spend some time in this week's episode talking about the Republican Party and the state of Congress and the state of the presidential race. But I'd like to note that there was an example of bipartisanship this week in which Joe Manchin and Mitt Romney helped pass a resolution to affirm the Senate's dress code as including a coat tie and slacks or other long pants. So before we talk about how ineffective they are, know that they're on top of sartorial decorum, if nothing else.
2: There does seem to be a bit of an intra-GOP divide when it comes to suitings. I mean, the old-style Republicans tend to favor quite loose-fitting suits, in my experience. But the younger MAGA staffers tend to wear really tight suits, I've never seen a tighter suit than the one Stephen Miller was wearing once when I was in the corridors of the Trump White House.
0: John, is your theory that that's uh, effect or cause (laughs) somehow? How does it connect to their politics? It
1: sounds like an Economist 10-page special report in the making.
2: I think it's causal. I think there's something about the tight suit that restricts blood flow to the brain. So yeah, that's my grand theory to explain what's happened to the Republican Party recently. But others will have more sophisticated theories. So we'll get on to that. Now, the Republican debate this week took place at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California. Ronald Reagan, of course, the darling of the Republican Party for four decades. But the modern Republican Party is much more enthralled to its current leader, de facto leader, Donald Trump. To dig into the comparisons between Trump and Reagan, I spoke to Rick Perlstein. He's one of the historians of the conservative movement in the second half of the 20th century and he's written a tetralogy of books on the topic. I asked him whether people are right to draw such stark contrasts between Reagan and Trump, or if the two Republican presidents are more alike than they might first appear.
4: Yes, I think certainly at the surface, one notices a strong contrast between the presidencies and personages of Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. But in part, that's because of the skill and sophistication of the people around Ronald Reagan in sort of domesticating his woolier and more, if you will, Trump like aspects. And, you know, the 45 years by now, you know, 43 years intervening between then and now, there is a you know, pretty remarkable institutional shift in the Republican Party as it kind of ratchets itself more and more right wing in an authoritarian direction. But I think. The question that ultimately leaves us with is whether that wasn't written into the dialectic at the beginning. I think of specifically how often researching Ronald Reagan for that book, Reaganland, I found examples, for example, of the kind of letters that Reagan would sign that would go to establishment figures like newspaper columnists, prominent professors, gatekeepers, if you will, that were written for him by his staff. And they were extremely carefully constructed to frame him as a mainstream figure. That was actually a political project. And then I also found the cache of letters that at the same time Ronald Reagan was dictating to his friends, his closer political allies, in which he was saying, you know, the kind of crazy things we associate with Republican office holders now. One famous example is. He would say so much of what's happening in the Middle East was predicted by biblical prophecy. And what does that mean for our politics now? The kind of thing that, you know, he had people around him to make sure that never seeped out in the public realm. Sometimes it would, and it would be of a bit of a scandal. I recently wrote in the book I'm writing now about an incident in which Ronald Reagan was quoted while he was president in the media saying that South Africa had solved its segregation problem which is, you know, as crazy as anything you'd hear Donald Trump saying. Most recently, for example, that he read that wind turbines, one of his pet hobby horses, had caused mental illness in Wales, right? So in a lot of ways, the history of the conservative movement from the era of Reagan to the era of Trump is that the people who, you know, are most influential in the party stop seeing it necessary to kind of maintain that scrim of respectability, Right. The way we put it here in the States is Ronald Reagan's dog whistle turned into Donald Trump's train whistle. There's also an interesting evolution of the image of Ronald Reagan. Of course, for decades, Democrats were always trying to find the next John F. Kennedy. Every new candidate, you know, Jimmy Carter had a famous picture of himself on the campaign trail where he looked more like John F. Kennedy than he really did. Joe Biden was once the next John F. Kennedy, right? And then eventually, generations passed, and people cared less about reproducing John F. Kennedy. It's the same way with Ronald Reagan. Every new election would have the guy trying to be Ronald Reagan, the kind of charming, folksy. And, you know, they never caught that lightning in a bottle. But the cult of Reagan is not what it once was.
2: Rick, do you think that Trump will eventually be sanctified by American history, or at least by the right, Because the version of Reagan that gets remembered is a cleaned up one without some of the remarks that you just mentioned. I mean, it seems hard to imagine Donald Trump being reinvented as a cuddly, unthreatening figure. But is that just what happens as time passes?
4: It doesn't matter how scary a conservative seems at the time, the next generation does seem to domesticate and clean them up. Ronald Reagan was seen as the guy who was going to nuke us all into oblivion, right? And when we yet survived. He was kind of domesticated into this figure of unity and consensus, which he never was when he was president, of all things. That is something that tends to happen. Is that conceivable with Donald Trump? Well, I mean, if my thesis is true that there's something inherent in the conservative project that ratchets it ever rightward in the direction of authoritarianism, and the next Republican standard bearer after Trump is raising militias, say then we might look at Donald Trump as the good old days. Of course, believers in smaller Republican forms of government and democracy and decency in America are fighting that. But that really is the struggle. Just to go back
2: to the Reagan comparison, as you say, Reagan said some nutso stuff that does sound Trump-like. But he was also capable of doing sunshine and upbeat optimism. Well, one of the most striking things about Trump's presidency was that he just wasn't.
4: Yes. I mean, their affect is radically different, right? It's American carnage versus morning in America, the city on the hill. It's important to remember that one of the reasons Reagan was such a sophisticated and accomplished and effective communicator was that he was very good at reading the temperature of his audience. So yes, it was morning in America in the 80s. But when he succeeded as governor in the 60s, he basically had a California carnage rhetoric about all the dangerous forces that were wrecking society. But he did share with what he described as his mother's optimism that was as wide as the cosmos. So yes, they read very differently. And of course, any successful politician in a democratic state, which is America is somewhat less so all the time, thanks to Donald Trump, is going to read the temperature of the room, both in the Republican Party And, you know, in kind of American political culture, generally, Donald Trump succeeds with his American carnage rhetoric because that echoes what people are feeling, what people are responding to. Whereas Ronald Reagan, only a couple decades back out from the apogee of America's power and success, when he said, make America great again, which was his 1980 campaign slogan, it had a very different rhetorical valence from when Donald Trump said it in 2016.
2: James, you wrote in this week's very nice Lexington column that the location of this week's debate, the second Republican debate, made life almost too easy for the moderator in terms of the opening question. It was at the Reagan Library, so the you know, obvious comparison to make between Reagan and Trump. and I think the moderator began by talking about whether America was still a shining city on the hill. What do you? make of the Reagan-Trump comparison? And are you with Rick Pelstein that there are more points in common there than perhaps most Americans might think?
0: Yes, I do agree with him that superficially, even in terms of their anti-establishment politics, the way they were both rejected by their party establishment and then took it over, the two are really similar. I would add to his list of differences, though, one really big one that might have some impact on the way history regards Donald Trump, which is that in the end, Ronald Reagan was a winner. You know, he built a durable majority politics, partly because he was such a great communicator, I think, and did convey a more ultimately optimistic message. Whereas Donald Trump has never won a majority when the presidency via a very narrow path through the Electoral College, he may do that again. And this was a point that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, tried to make again in the debate last night. He went after Donald Trump as being a loser who's dragging the Republican Party down. That was not something any fellow Republican would say about Ronald Reagan by the end of his first term.
1: That's right. I was interested in DeSantis last night talking about, especially in his opening remarks before the debate really devolved, about how Donald Trump is missing in action and that he should be there to defend his record, including adding $7.8 trillion to the debt And I think that you saw there a desire by DeSantis, and I think it's shared by many others, to try to point specifically to what Donald Trump did in office rather than just Donald Trump as a persona, because Donald Trump as a persona is hugely popular within the Republican Party. And so trying to ground it more in what Donald Trump meant for the country in real terms. And part of that is hearkening back to Reagan's own rhetoric around Entitlement reform. Reagan pushed for entitlement reform was not as successful as he would have wanted to be, but he certainly brought more substance to that effort than Donald Trump did. I think DeSantis and others would certainly like to position themselves as being a more substantive successor to Donald Trump, perhaps more in the Reagan model than the former president. One thing that didn't come up in last night's debate, nor in the discussion that we've had so far, is a big differentiator between Trump and Reagan or just something that's quite distinct about Trump himself, is the enormous amount of legal allegations that have been waged against him. And not just allegations at this point, right? I mean, this week, we had Trump found liable for fraud in a New York civil case. Of course, Trump denies all charges and allegations, but it's worth noting that none of his supposed competitors see it to be worthwhile to raise it.
0: I think that's one thing that people in the Republican Party who remember Ronald Reagan find still so shocking about Donald Trump. It goes hand in hand with his lack of respect for American institutions. And, you know, it's funny to think about, whereas Ronald Reagan was reverential about, certainly publicly reverential about the institutions of American democracy, you think a little bit about how both these guys came out of popular entertainment, but very different forms of entertainment, Right. Ronald Reagan came out of the movies, scripted Hollywood, and Donald Trump out of reality television, where the game is so completely different. And so they had very different understandings of how to present themselves in the popular culture in terms of their personal deportment,
2: I think. People also often refer back to Ronald Reagan's use of make America great again, which of course Donald Trump adopted. But there's a word missing in Trump's knockoff. Reagan said, let's make America great again. And that was the slogan. Whereas Donald Trump takes the lets out of it. His MAGA slogan has a much more I alone can fix it vibe, which I think is a big difference between the two. We'll consider some literary precedents for Donald Trump's offstage presence at the Republican debate in a moment. But before we do that, some of our regular listeners have written in saying that they missed the story recommendations from The Economist that you guys give. So Charlotte and James, what have you particularly enjoyed reading in The Economist recently?
0: Well, I'm a little concerned about what this may reveal about me, John, but I was scanning this week's issue and the headline jumped out at me, the world's greatest toilet culture. I have to say though, in my defense, I was reacting with my old editor's hat on because it was obviously going to be a story about Japan's toilets and I was just very curious to see the way The Economist would execute it. And What I love about this piece, what I think that I admire so much about The Economist is when you read it, it is only four paragraphs long. It does not stick an elbow in your ribs every other sentence. It tells you what's new, which is that Vim Vendors has a movie out about a Japanese sanitary worker. And so whether you're familiar with this old story about toilets in Japan or not, it tells you the details you need to know. And it does it in just a a wry yet respectful way.
2: That is a good wreck. The last time I was in New York, I stayed with a friend who had a Japanese toilet. And as people do when they come across these things for the first time, pressed all the wrong buttons with some interesting results. Charlotte, what about you?
1: I will highlight our Technology Quarterly, which is a long report by Jeff Carr, who was science editor of The Economist Forever. I wrote for him when I was covering healthcare, a really brilliant person And he wrote a series of articles on the subject of slowing aging and deterring death. He is an absolute expert at unpacking scientific research in a way that's understandable. And I would point readers to it.
2: Our colleague Andrew Miller writes Backstory, the Economist's column on culture. Donald Trump's decision to skip the Republican primary debates reminded him of the role off-stage characters have played in great works of literature and
3: classic films. If we think about the novel Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, the title character, Rebecca, is everywhere in that book. There are little traces of her all over Mandalay, the house where a lot of the story is set, and the characters can't escape her influence. And yet Rebecca herself never actually appears, is dead before the plot begins. I think Du Maurier, writing this book, grasps something important about storytelling, which is that a character you don't see can be just as important and influential as those that you do. And I think that's something that Donald Trump understands too. If you look at his attitudes to the Republican presidential debates, he's haunted these events, and he's been an invisible presence in them, and yet he didn't turn up. An absence not turning up can have lots of different effects. One of them is that it can be a power play, as it is in real life. Think of Vladimir Putin keeping everybody waiting for their meetings with him. And in stories, often a leader or a mafia don or a spy master, asserts their power by getting their minions to do their bidding. Think of Charlie in Charlie's Angels. You see his agents running all over the place, but we never actually see Charlie's face, Or a comedy example is the British sitcom Yes Minister, where everyone's petrified of the Prime Minister, but we never actually meet him. I think Donald Trump achieved this effect. In the first debate, at one moment, Mike Pence referred to him as And even to one that's probably looking on. One that's probably looking on, which made Mr. Trump seem almost semi-divine, like he was a kind of celestial, omniscient presence. And another response that absence can cultivate is fear, since a lot of storytellers know that what you don't see can be a lot scarier than what you're shown. Especially if they stir in a bit of creepy music, every viewer fills in the gap with their own worst horrors. For example, in the Blair Witch Project, we never see the witch or whoever it is that's stalking the film students. We never see the hunter who shoots poor Bambi's mother. On the other hand, When you do finally see the shark in Jaws, it's a lot less scary than when it was invisible. And probably the most subtle way in which an unseen character can play a big role is as a measure of other people's vices and virtues. Think of Romeo and Juliet, in which, at the beginning, Romeo is in love not with Juliet, but with Rosaline, who he thinks is the fairest maiden since first the world begun. Now, we never actually meet Rosaline, but she gives us an early sense of just how overheated and intemperate Romeo's emotions can be. And I think Donald Trump played a role like this in the Republican debates. He's been a kind of invisible measure of the other candidates' independence of mind. Think of the time in the first debate when Chris Christie earned booze from the studio audience for saying that some of Mr. Trump's actions were beneath the office of President of the United States. Or think of Vivek Ramaswamy, who praised Trump to the heavens. That time, Ron DeSantis tried to wriggle between condemnation of the former president and defending him, a pretty agonising spectacle. By the second debate this week, he was a bit more critical of the former president. Donald Trump is
5: missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you.
3: Now, the most famous unseen character in literature is probably Godot in Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot. The two main characters, Vladimir and Estrigan, are not sure what Godot looks like and whether he'll ever actually come. And if he does, what will happen afterwards? Will they be saved or will they be punished? All they know is that they're waiting for him. He kind of gives them a purpose, he's the reason they're there, but he's also a pretext for inertia and kind of not doing anything much at all. Now, I'm not saying that Donald Trump is much like Godot. He's not really ever off stage, for starters. Even on debate nights, he makes sure to program some other appearance, an interview, or this week a speech.
0: I've risked it all to defend the working class from the corrupt political class that has spent decades sucking the life,
3: wealth, and blood out of this country. But he does share some of the characteristics of the unseen figures we've been talking about. He projects power by not showing up, and he evokes fear in at least some Americans. And I think he does have this in common with Godot, which is that the rest of the Republican candidates we've been watching in the debates are kind of plagued and paralysed by his shadow, even though, or perhaps especially, because he doesn't turn up. And if you think of the ending of the play, Waiting for Godot, the predicaments of the characters and those of these Republican candidates are kind of alike. Let's go, one of the characters says in the play, before Beckett's final stage direction. They do not move.
2: Charlotte, about a month ago, when we were talking about what to cover in episodes on Checks and Balance, we thought about doing the first Republican debate and then concluded we wouldn't because Trump not being there made it, if not quite irrelevant, then a sideshow. And since then, his polling lead in the Republican primary has only grown. So these Republican primary debates have got even stranger. What did you make of the debate as scripted by Samuel Beckett?
1: Well, the debate was chaotic. It was a show of candidates who were individually ineffective and probably collectively a reminder of the party's sorry state. I think the thing that I thought was most strange was Chris Christie's reference to Biden sleeping with a member of the teachers' union i e his wife, and then Pence chiming in later that he also was sleeping with a teacher and referencing his wife? And when you think about political candidates needing to offer voters a compelling vision, I think that vision should probably not be the Pence bedroom. I thought that was really weird. Other things that I thought were notable, I thought Haley was pretty good. She's trying to be forthright and aggressive and you had her go after Ramaswamy in a very clear way, saying that she felt dumber every time she heard him talk. I got more than a dozen emails from the DeSantis campaign with debate updates, which felt somewhat desperate. And you see him really trying to make a mark. I think that he didn't do a bad job. He did an absolutely fine job. But I think your reference to the polling after the last debate points to an underlying question, which is, what's the point? of these things. Is it people who are trying out to be Trump's running mate? Is it to try to boost their ranking in the polls? Is that possible? Or is it to try to win donors? I mean, I think that last aim is probably the main point at this stage where you have some donors who haven't really thrown their huge weight behind a particular alternative to Trump and still might, in particular, the Koch brothers. So I found the debate to be pretty weird, unclear what the point was. I wonder what donors will make of it. I think that we'll know in a month or two, because time's running out, right? If someone's going to come in and try to really back an alternative to Trump, this fall is the time.
2: James, are you any clearer what the point of these debates are, having sat through a couple of them? I mean, one of the things that's interested me is the way in which you can see some policies becoming mainstream within the Republican Party. So, the fact that in the first debate that invading Mexico, sending American soldiers after drug cartels there had become the accepted position in the Republican Party for dealing with the fentanyl crisis. It's interesting to see a policy like that going from total fringe wacko onto the main debate stage. Was there anything else like that?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, John. That's sort of Difference that we got in the first debate was, if anything, less evident this time. The candidates generally are converging around the same set of policies, really. One exception remains Ukraine, where Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy are setting themselves apart from the rest of the field and setting themselves closer to Donald Trump by suggesting that America is overcommitted in Ukraine's fight against Russia. And actually, just briefly on Ron DeSantis, he didn't have a terrible night, but he continued to fall back on speech chunks. And when he was really challenged on his record in Florida, he was asked about the rates of uninsured in Florida. Nikki Haley pressed him on his ban on fracking in Florida. And he really struggled to improvise and respond in real time.
2: Charlotte, and as Andy already mentioned, Donald Trump counterprograms these debates, This week, he was in Michigan talking to auto workers. the day after Joe Biden had become the first American president to join a picket line in support of the UAW strike. What did you make of Trump's appearance there?
1: I thought that Trump did something really interesting in Michigan, and it builds on the conversation that we had with Simon Rabinovich a few weeks ago talking about Biden's bet on unions. But you had, of course, Biden in Michigan joining the picket line. Biden has used the Inflation Reduction Act to merge these two goals of helping American workers and speeding the transition to clean energy. And those two goals don't fit neatly together. And Trump is very much capitalizing that. And he cares about workers, not about climate change. And that's something that you see as a message across the Republican field, as James referenced, a main point of criticism from Nikki Haley is that DeSantis didn't want fracking in Florida. And one of the things I find Most interesting about Trump's message on this is that it's very much a nationalist policy. He wants to have a manufacturing revival in the same way that Joe Biden does. He said in Michigan, my pledge to everyone is that a vote for President Trump means the future of the automobile will be made in America. It will be fueled by American energy, sourced by American suppliers, sculpted from American aluminum and steel and built by highly skilled American hands and high-wage American labor. I mean, that is an even more closed protectionist message than Joe Biden would deliver. And so they basically have the same message here with two important distinctions. One is that Trump wants it to be a manufacturing revival powered by fossil fuels, and Joe Biden is interested in clean ones. And then also Trump is trying to dance this delicate balance of appealing to workers without overly appealing to union members themselves. He gave his talk at a company that does not have a unionized workforce. But it seems to kind of work. There are voters who are members of unions who nonetheless seem to be tilting towards Trump. There was a poll in Michigan that was done in August, and Trump had managed to eke back an edge over Biden among union members in that state. So It's a stance that seems to work for Trump.
2: Okay, let's pause there. We'll be back in a moment to look at what the GOP is up to in Washington and more specifically in the House of Representatives.
6: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100%
2: We're now going to hear from a new colleague, Adam O'Neill. Adam has just joined us as The Economist's Washington correspondent, and we're very happy to have him, and no doubt he'll become a regular fixture on checks and balance. This week, he's been writing about the impending federal government shutdown, which, as we record on Thursday, looks likely to start over the weekend. There have been lots of shutdowns before, of course, so I asked Adam what's different about how America got to the brink of this one.
5: Typically in Washington, when you have a shutdown, it's because there's divided government. Republicans in the White House, Democrats in Congress, and they have a policy disagreement. And it can range from funding levels to unrelated issues. But what we have this time, while there is divided government, a shutdown stemming from a fight between Republicans within just one chamber of Congress And that's the big distinction and sort of why it feels to a lot of people just sillier than usual. So if the government does shut down
2: from October 1st, what happens next?
5: It varies. And the White House actually has a little bit of discretion. I was speaking to a former director of the Office of Management and Budget who oversees these kinds of issues and had actually overseen a shutdown. But certain things it can't avoid. And probably the biggest among those is pay military service members will not receive paychecks. However, pensioners, they'll still get paid because those are mandatory spending and that's separate from what the shutdown fight is about. But we also kind of don't know. There are some things that we'll find out. For example, the food stamp program, they have a contingency fund set aside with money to pay out benefits even in the event of a government shutdown. But it's unclear how long the shutdown will last and whether those contingency funds will be able to cover them throughout the entire shutdown. But we can say for sure that the longer it goes, the more difficult it will be.
2: Republicans didn't do as well as they would perhaps expected to in 2022, which meant that when Kevin McCarthy was eventually chosen as Speaker by the House Republican caucus, he had a pretty narrow margin to maneuver with in the House. And that margin has since become even narrower due to a Republican retirement. Do you think he's played his hand badly here in negotiating with or attempting to deal with the Freedom Caucus within the House GOP? Or do you think he's just been in
5: an impossible position? I think if you look back to this fight that they had in January to make him speaker, it really depends how you're thinking about this. On the one hand, you could say, yes, he's had a tough time and he's maybe not making them happy. But on the other hand, When that fight started to make him Speaker, there were a much larger group of members of the House of Representatives who said, we hate Kevin McCarthy. He will never be Speaker, and we will never vote for him. And it took an embarrassing 15 rounds of voting. Usually, it's just a pro forma exercise, but he became Speaker. And that by itself is quite an accomplishment. And earlier in the year, when he negotiated a debt ceiling bill, it's widely understood that he outmaneuvered the Freedom Caucus pretty effectively. And I think that that's why there's a lot of anger on their end toward him. That anger goes back for years. But in this recent budget fight, because they think that this is our last chance to really get some concessions from McCarthy, from the White House, from everyone. And we kind of got rolled a few months ago, and now's our opportunity. So I would say the fact that he's speaker, well, I don't know why he wants that job, but the fact that he managed to pull it off and that he still has the job is pretty impressive. The question is, will he survive this fight? And that will be the real judge of whether or not he deftly handled this.
2: And government shutdowns these days in Washington tend to happen when the Republican Party has a majority in the House and Democrats hold the presidency. And that indeed is the configuration now. Often, the pattern you see is that a group within the House Republican caucus wants to shut the government down as a means to try and enforce spending cuts. It comes from a somewhat you know, libertarian or perhaps just conservative instinct that, you know, this leverage can be used to shrink the government when Republicans don't control the White House. Is that, again, the case this time around? I mean, do the House Freedom Caucus members have policy aims here, or is there something else going on? Does it have more to do with animus towards Kevin McCarthy?
5: I think you can divide the House Republicans roughly into three groups, and there are some shades of gray here, but this is, for our purposes, probably the most useful way to think about it. There's about 220 plus or minus. Most of them, 80, 90% of them, basically agree that Biden's border policy has been a disaster. They don't like wokeness. They want to cut spending again. But they understand that they have a tiny majority in one chamber. Biden is president. Democrats control the Senate. Their priorities will move forward. The second group is the Freedom Caucus. But the Freedom Caucus has sort of splintered into two groups at this point. One, and I think it's most of the Freedom Caucus, are people who essentially think that the establishment and also the rank and file behind them, most of the Republican conference, they might be right, but they're bad at bargaining. They think that McCarthy got beaten by the White House and the debt ceiling negotiation, even though he did get some concessions. And what they're trying to do is push him and kind of be the crazy person in the room who's saying, oh, we'll shut it down and to try to get Biden to blink. And the third group and it's the smallest, but it's still enough to threaten McCarthy because the majority is so small. They hate McCarthy. They don't like the guy. And a lot of folks that I spoke to this week, they suspect that those people are not really negotiating in good faith. If McCarthy offered to arrest Zelensky, reduce government spending to zero dollars and deploy 300,000 troops to the border, Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida, he'd probably vote against that just because McCarthy was voting for it.
2: Adam, Donald Trump, as still the de facto leader of the Republican Party and likely nominee, hovers over all of this and has been offering advice to House members on how they should vote. How much is any of this about pleasing Trump or being seen to be loyal to him? And how much is it about dynamics within Congress?
5: This is an interesting question because, without a doubt, Donald Trump is the most powerful Republican, and he has been since he beat Hillary Clinton in the presidential election. But Donald Trump is also not really a policy guy. So I don't think Donald Trump is going to be super interested in continuing resolutions and various legislative maneuvers. It's more of a vibe thing. And as he tweeted in all caps, shut the thing down. And he's very much made clear to them, you've got a thumbs up. I support the people who want to shut the government down. One interesting thing, though, is that he's really pushing for them to defund the Department of Justice, the people that are investigating him and prosecuting him very soon. But what's interesting about that is it seems that the Republicans have decided that maybe we'll call for some of that. Right. But by and large, they're focusing in addition to spending levels. The main policy focus is about the fight over the border and that they want to shut down the border, as they say. And they're not putting Donald Trump's request to defund the Department of Justice front and center.
2: James, such is the effect of Donald Trump on American politics that in the same week we have him being found liable for fraud in New York. We have him dominating the coverage on cable news while there's actually a Republican primary debate going on. The government's about to shut down. That perhaps hasn't got as much attention as it deserves or normally would. And on top of all of that, the House has begun an impeachment hearing into Joe Biden
0: yeah John, it's just hard not to think this is completely crazy politics for the Republicans because I do think Americans out there watching this are just scratching their head wondering how they have time to be conducting these hearings when they can't even figure out how to keep the basic functions of government operating, how to pay for them. And listening to Adam, I found myself thinking back on Reagan again, and how different the political context was because he ran as a right winger. He was a fierce partisan. He governed as a right winger, yet he's remembered for historic compromises he reached with the Democrats around tax reform and actually around immigration. You know, he made the trade of enhanced border security for amnesty for almost 3 million people who'd come into the U.S. illegally, It's unimaginable, I think, that a Republican would make that deal now, although the polling says that is the deal that the American people want. They want to see that kind of compromise. There is a path for McCarthy to fund the government. It would require him to do a deal with the Democrats, but that is such anathema within the party right now that he would lose his speakership. And I have to say, that throws me back on the question that Adam kind of pointed to, which is, Why did he want the job in the first place? You know, at a certain point, you would hope that our political leaders would actually step up and stand for something. And McCarthy has made clear he thinks what this fringe group of Republicans is doing is insane, yet he's not willing to, uh, at least he hasn't been so far, willing to really do what I suspect he knows is the right thing which is to face them down even at the cost of his own job. I mean, we see this in institution across institution in American life right now. You got it in the end. You have to stand for something or we're never going to find our way out of this mess.
1: Well, James, don't you think that we've seen again and again since Trump appeared on the landscape, different politicians wrestle with this question of whether it's better to throw in one's lot with Trump or resist him. And the people who've resisted him largely— do so for a while and then retire, you know most recently, Mitt Romney saying that he's not going to run again, and other people go through these weird contortions that serve them, I guess, a bit in the short term, but certainly not the country in the short term or the long term, and I don't even think themselves in the long term.
2: I thought the point that Adam made about how this shutdown is really about personal animus rather than about ideology was really interesting because one of the themes of the Trump era has been whether or not the party has a coherent ideology now. And there is one, I think, if you squint a bit, but it's also the case that the exercise of power and the pursuit of power is much more important than that ideology. You know, one of the features of Trump's presidency was he would change course and immediately people would line up behind whatever the new position was. And sometimes they got it wrong because the new position would change so quickly And plenty of Republicans made themselves look pretty silly in the course of that. That spirit has now spread to the House of Representatives. I mean, when I turned up in Washington for The Economist in 2013, there was a government shutdown shortly after I arrived. And there there was a genuine attempt by a libertarian faction within the House of Representatives to shut down the government to try and shrink it. This time, that's not the case at all, right? As Adam described, it's just about... Kevin McCarthy's very thin majority and the animus towards him within his own caucus. And the result of that is going to be a shutdown that's probably going to last for three weeks, maybe more.
1: Three weeks is a really long time for the government to be shut down. And then there is also just the normal work that Congress should be doing on all manner of issue, including things that come up every year, like the National Defense Authorization Act, things that come up every five years, like the Farm Bill. And also there are lots of issues that are not emergent in the way the basic functioning of the federal government is, but nevertheless are hugely important. So the China Select Committee, which we've spoken about, is going to publish a report on trade sometime this fall. The administration is working on various measures ahead of a possible meeting with Xi in November. There's just a lot of stuff that the government could be working on in the country's interest that it won't.
2: I was talking to Adam O'Neill earlier about how this shutdown ends, how it gets resolved given how intractable the differences are. And he thinks the real pressure point is when congressional staffers who haven't been paid for three weeks start to badger their bosses into making a deal. So I like the idea that it's the kind of 20-year-olds in the tight suits who ultimately get the federal government back on the road again at the end of this one.
0: Yeah, and John, you know, the other thing is, I mean, everything is a test of Joe Biden, of course. He's president of the United States. This moment is just a huge test for him. The problem is here he's got this shutdown. And a big question is, is Joe Biden capable? And one hates to say it, at his age, is he strong enough to be out there in the public communicating effectively effectively? about what he's trying to do and why what the Republicans in Congress are doing right now is so crazy. I think we'll have to see if Joe Biden is capable now. Communication has never been his great strong suit, it has to be said. Some of this may not be related to age, but whether he's really capable of taking advantage of this moment.
2: Yes, I don't want to be too mean to Joe Biden, but I think we know the answer to that, unfortunately. Okay, that seems like a good place to wrap this one up. Before you go, James Charlotte, it's quiz time. Oh, James, you get the exorbitant privilege of competing in the quiz. Question one, Ronald Reagan skipped a debate the night before the Iowa caucuses in 1980, partly because he was so far ahead in the polls that victory seemed assured. But who actually beat him in the Iowa caucuses that year? Wow.
1: 1980.
0: Iowa caucus. God, did George Bush win the Iowa caucus?
1: Seems unlikely. Um, But I'm glad to hear that this question has you stumped. In quizzes, my version of a victory is when someone else also doesn't know the answer.
2: I think, unfortunately, in this case, James isn't stumped because George H.W. Bush is the answer. Reagan's eventual vice president did beat him in the Iowa caucuses. So, James, I don't know if that was your answer, but I'm pouncing on it as if it I'll were... I'll
0: claim it. It's just a lucky guess. I
2: would have.
1: Lucky guesses work.
2: Yeah. Okay, we're going to skip ahead a few years now. Question two. In December 2011, five of the seven Republican candidates, including Mitt Romney, pulled out of a debate that was due to be broadcast on Newsmax. Who was set to be that debate's moderator? What a great question. I don't know.
1: Trying to think of who would have been a really incendiary figure at Fox News, but then that wouldn't be a deterrent necessarily. Hmm.
2: The answer may be more obvious than you're thinking. you got me, John. I don't
1: remember. <laughs> this really just put us out of our misery.
2: It was Donald Trump.
1: Oh, uh, it did cross my mind, but...
2: Yeah, the debate was canceled when Trump withdrew as a moderator. He hadn't been happy at the no-shows. And he tweeted, Why is the GOP establishment so threatened by the Newsmax debate? More debate is always better. (laughs) So, uh, consistent as ever. And I have a bonus question for you. How much will it cost per month to sign up now to our Economist Podcasts Plus subscription?
1: Oh, this one I know. Two dollars or two pounds or two euro
2: is the right answer, Charlotte. Congratulations.
0: I feel like that's a little bit unfair. I feel like that's, you know. That was unfair. Charlotte's a little bit of a ringer when it comes to that question. But but I'm happy to see you walk away with this one, Charlotte.
1: I'm perfectly comfortable with that being unfair. Yes, listeners can sign up for our podcast subscription for the equivalent of $2 a month. It's an annual subscription until October 17th. So you have a few more weeks to take advantage of that offer.
2: Yes, as Charlotte says, we're launching a new podcast subscription next month, in case you didn't know, from mid-October to enjoy every episode of our weekly podcasts, including Checks and Balance, and our special podcast series, you'll need to be a subscriber. If you're already a subscriber to The Economist, then thank you. You'll have full access to all our shows as part of your subscription. If you're not already a subscriber, you'll need to sign up to Economist Podcasts Plus. And if you sign up now, as Charlotte says, it's half price £24.50 or $24.50 for the whole year. For that, you get all our regular shows and some exciting new ones. If you want to sign up, then just click on the link in the show notes. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, James. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. James Stickland and Nicola Rofast are our sound engineers. Thank you to everyone who emailed us following our episode on America's relationship with Australia last week. And apologies to Keith in Vancouver, who pointed out that we failed to give Canada an honourable mention on the shortlist of America's best friends. We very much enjoy your emails, so please keep them coming. You can get in touch with us at podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.